Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> we have a few visitors here this morning. If, uh, if you're a visitor to 6th Avenue, and during our service you found yourself thinking, man, that's a, that's a lot of scripture reading, and man, that's a, a long time in prayer. I get it. I've been there. I've been a member of a church where the only time scripture is read is maybe occasionally as the sermon is being preached, where the only real prayer that takes place in the service is when people are trying to transition between songs or one person coming on the stage and another person going off. But friends, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be a people who are serious about God's word, who are serious about going to God in prayer, who are serious about sitting under the reading and the preaching of his word and and being changed by it. I wonder why those churches don't pray as much as other churches. I wonder why historically the churches always come together to pray and to sit under the word and why it's not that common these days. That's not what my sermon is about, but that might be something worth considering as you think about your own church experience. This morning we're going to be in the book of Ephesians in the fifth chapter. We're going to continue our walk through this wonderful letter. What is it about darkness that scares us? When we were children, maybe we were scared of the dark for some silly reasons, right? Maybe our babysitter told us that there were monsters under the dark bed. Maybe our uh, brothers and sisters told us stories about ghosts in the woods or in the dark closet. But why are we still afraid of the dark as adults? I know you're sitting there, you may be thinking, I can even see it on on your face. You're like, I'm not afraid of the dark. That's what it means to be an adult. Well, okay, you say that. But I wonder how much time you've really spent in the dark recently, right? You think about your modern experience, you go from one light source to another. It's one of the reasons why I don't wear a coat in the winter. I'm just going from a heated building to a heated car to a heated building. I don't need a coat, I'll be okay. We go from a light source to a light source to a light source. When was the last time that you were really in the dark, in a dark alley, alone in a building at night in the dark. Even in the wilderness, you go out camping, you just have the faint glow of the city lights illuminating your atmosphere around you. When we're afraid of the dark as children, we're largely afraid of what might be there, right? We're afraid of the imaginary. But as adults, we're afraid of the dark because we actually know a lot about the world and we know that there's a lot of bad things that happen in the dark. We know that spiders and snakes live in dark, scary holes and if we put our hands in there, we might get bit. At least I think that's true. uh, We're afraid of the dark because we know that the majority of vice like murder, robbery, assault, it occurs at night. And not just at night, it occurs in the places where the light isn't prevalent. This is a universal human experience, and for that reason, every culture that the world has ever known has come to see darkness symbolically. They've come to have it represent mystery and fear and evil. If you were here when I preached through the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember me addressing the same theme, and I said that, you know, darkness in and of itself is not evil. It's not bad. God created the world the way that it is with darkness and light. God called the light day and the darkness night, is what Genesis says. But then Genesis 3 happened, the fall, sin entered into the world, and when it did, it made darkness its home. If you remember, right after the fall, Adam and Eve, the first thing that they did when they came to a consciousness of their sin was they tried to hide from the light. And that's what the darkness does. The darkness provides a hiding place for sin. It gives sin a place to go hide and to breed and to proliferate. The Bible talks about salvation, regeneration, coming to Christ in a number of different ways, passing from death to life, stony heart to heart of flesh, lost to found, blind to seeing, deaf to hearing, hater of God, lover of God, enemies of God turn to friends of God, Orphans become children, strangers and aliens become citizens in the kingdom. But today's text that we're going to be studying in Ephesians 5, it talks about salvation by looking at the picture of darkness 
and light. We were once darkness, but now we are light, says Paul. Well, what does that mean for our lives? Let's read the text and see for ourselves. Now, I know you're thinking, Sean, we already read the whole text this morning, but you know, to repeat myself is no problem for me and... Okay. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Amen. Father, we need your word to do its work in our lives this morning. We're completely and utterly dependent upon you as a church and as individuals, as families. And so we ask that you would bless your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I've got six points for you this morning. Six. Six. We don't, point number one, practice darkness. Point number two, joke about darkness. Point number three, partner with darkness. If you don't catch all these, that's fine. I'm going to state them again as I walk through the sermon. But rather, as Christians, we, point number four, discern the darkness, expose the darkness, and convert the darkness. Let's dive right in with point number one, practice darkness. In verse 3, Paul says that there are three things that should not be named among the saints. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now, in some of your translations, you may not have the word covetous. You may have the word greed. I think that's okay. Both of those are fine translations. They communicate the same kind of idea, right? The, the covetous person, the greedy person, they just want more of whatever's out there and not what God has already given them. Same kind of idea. <clears throat> These are what verse 11 calls the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, why do you think Paul chose to focus in on these three things? I mean, really, Paul could have talked about 10,000 different sins here that we as Christians should not practice. Why these three? Well, I think to understand, you have to go back to chapter 4 and read uh, verse 18. When you look at verse 18 of chapter 4, I think you'll be clued in. It says, in talking about those who have not been converted to Christ, those who are still outside of Christ's love, it says they are darkened in their understanding. You see that same language of darkness, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, Right? So you see these three kinds of sins lumped together already in chapter 4, and then when you read kind of other Jewish literature and you read a bunch of other things that Paul writes in the New Testament, sensuality or sexual immorality, greed, and impurity, these are kind of the big three that are always clumped together. And I think the reason why is they're meant to sort of represent, they're the big three that just sort of represent every kind of evil, every kind of rebellion, every kind of immorality. So when Paul says that these things should not be named among us, he doesn't just mean these three things. What he means is anything 
that relates to any of these kinds of sins. Drunkenness, stealing, gossip, murder, gluttony, factionalism, and the list could just go on and on and on. And the reason why Paul says that these should not be named among us is verse six. In verse six, he tells us that these things bring about the wrath of God. But what does it mean when he says that these sins that bring bring about the wrath of God, he says they shouldn't be named among us. What does that mean? That's a more literal translation of the Greek, and uh, that's good, but it's a little clunky in English because, in, at least in modern English, we don't talk about something being named. That's just, we, don't, we really use name more as a noun, not as a verb. Well, I, I think what, what it means is this. Those who observe the church from the inside or from the outside shouldn't be able to see these things in our corporate life together. Those who are observing the church should not be able to see these things, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, when they look at the life of the church. So the other day, Grant and I went on a mandate, right? We went on a date together. No, okay, well, it was an elder's timeout, but I like to think of it as a date. And we went to this cute little restaurant in Madison, right? And we had a nice little walk. It was lovely. We walked right before the meal, which was phenomenal, by the way, We walked uh, up to this old Methodist church. Uh, the doors were locked. That's why we couldn't get in. It's not because we're not Methodists. But we, I wanted to look inside this old Methodist church to, you know, see what's up. And I, 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 I couldn't get in, so I just started looking through the windows, you know. And through one of the windows, I saw the candle holder things that they, I think their, their version of choir boys use. And then I, I saw their pews in the sanctuary that looked, at least from what I could see, very much like our own sanctuary. It was kind of cool. And then I went around to another window, hoping that nobody called the police on me to try to see what I could see there, right? And I saw an elevator, nothing spectacular. And I looked in all the windows that I could to just kind of try to see what was going on in this church. It's pretty unexciting, I know. So my question is, for those who are peeking through the window of our church, those who are on the outside looking in at Sixth Avenue, what do you think they see? And by those peeking from the outside looking in, I don't just mean kind of the community and their perspective of our church. I also mean those who like drop in on a Sunday morning or those who are not members of the church but who are here often enough that they kind of have a feel for the life of our church. What do you think they see? What do you think they would name among us, especially the more and more they get to know us? I don't say this pridefully. I say it factually. We all know churches where these sorts of things are easily named among them, right? We know churches where it's not uncommon for members to be out living crazy on Saturday night and come to church on Sunday morning and feel no sense of conflict about that. We know churches where sexual promiscuity is just politely tolerated and ignored in the life of the church. We all know of churches where greed and idolatry characterize their gatherings in their doctrine and in their actions and in their lifestyle. Now sometimes it's not so obvious from the outside looking in, but the closer you get, the more these things tend to come into focus in the leadership, in the congregation. And friends, these things should just not be normal in any church of Jesus Christ. These things should not be normal in any church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says the reason why is because these things bring about the wrath of God. They're not in tune with who we are as Christians. Look at at verse five. He says, you may be sure of this, that anyone who practices these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, that such people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says you can be sure of it. So brothers and sisters, are we sure of it? Do we believe this? Not just individually, but as a church. If we are sure that this sort of thing will lead us to hell, then we must handle sin accordingly. If we love people and we don't want people to go to hell, we must handle sin accordingly. So let's just stop and look at this through the lens of baptism for a second, okay? How many people do you think have gone to hell because they have been given false assurance in their baptism? How common is the practice 
in any number of churches, you can pick a couple right here in our own city, to emotionally pressure, to manipulate children and adults to get baptized. Then these same children or adults go off and they live lives that are characterized by sexual immorality, by impurity, by greed. It, it just it characterizes their whole lives. And they feel no sense of conflict between their confession of faith and their lifestyle. They profess to be light, but they live life, lives of darkness. And one of the reasons why they feel confident in that is because so many American churches say, hey, you were baptized today, you're good to go. Write this date in your Bible. No matter what happens, you're going to go get to be with Jesus. Friends, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls on us to not only trust in Christ, but to also continue to trust in Christ. Not That just not only calls us to repent of our sins, but to continue to repent of our sins. The Bible nowhere says that if you're baptized, you're going to go to heaven. But it, 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 it says in so many places, including in our text today, that if you don't live lives that are marked by purity, if you don't walk in the light as he is in the light, you will go to hell. Something feels backwards in our whole American church experience. And this is why we take church membership and church discipline so seriously. This is why we encourage you and exhort you to please be at members meetings where we practice meaningful church membership and church discipline together. When we as a church receive someone into church membership, what we are corporately doing is looking at somebody's life and we go, you know, as far as I can tell, I'm not God. We don't have an x-ray machine, but as far as we can tell, you are walking in the light. And then in church discipline, if someone begins to abandon the faith, either doctrinally or through their lifestyle, if these things start to become normal for people, sexual immorality, impurity, and they're not, they're not repenting of it, and we, we finally come together as a church to discipline them, we say this, we say, the way you are living is not proper among the saints. We're just repeating what Paul says right here in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. We're just saying it with one corporate voice. We're saying it's out of place, which Paul says right here in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. We're saying with Paul, you may be sure of this, that the unfruitful works of darkness in your life will bring the wrath of God down on your head. And then we say with Paul, do not be deceived by those who are trying to tell you that it's going to be okay for you to continue to live in sin even if it's the church that's telling you it's going to be okay, it's not okay. And friends, people will try to deceive you. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, Paul's not just trying to fill up a word count in this letter. He's telling these people to not be deceived because someone is trying to deceive them. Paul knows that there will be the voice of Satan coming and trying to tell them that they will not die if they sin. False teachers will come and try to deceive you with false teaching and false gospels. Your sinful heart may try to deceive you and tell you that everything's going to be okay. Popular Christian authors will try and deceive you and tell you that the wrath of God does not come down on the sons of disobedience for these sins. A fun little game you might be able to try to play is keep track of an evangelical author who holds to the fullness of the gospel and then as the, as the tides of the culture shift on any number of issues from sexuality and gender to anything else, the exclusivity of Christ, and just watch one by one as these Christian authors who are selling 150,000 books, how they just begin to just say, well, actually, no, I don't think the wrath of God will come on you because of that sin or, or that sin. And actually, God's okay with this now. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, Satan, through his various means and ways, has been speaking into the ears of God's people and telling them, it's going to be okay. I know God has said this, but I'm telling you something else, and you don't have to listen to God. You can sin, and you won't die. But friends, do not believe it. 
God's word is full of goodness and righteousness and truth. So as Christians, we must invest all of our time and energy and focus to listening to what God has said in his word and to shutting out those who would try to deceive us and lead us away from it. Point number two. Point number one is the longest one of the sermon, by the way. We're going to be okay. Point number two. We don't joke about darkness. The next thing that Paul says is that our lips should match our lives, right? And he lists three kinds of speech that we must avoid as children of the light. Look at verse four. He says, there must not be any filthiness, foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now, I think Paul's already addressed this sort of thing in chapter four, verse 29. And I think there, these three kinds of inappropriate language are all summarized under Paul's phrase, corrupting talk, right? We looked at that a little bit last week. One of the things that we didn't see very much from that text last week was where Paul says that we should build each other up. And then he says the phrase, we should use our speech to build each other up. And he, he says the phrase, as fits the occasion. As fits the occasion, right? So there's an aspect to how we use our language that s- something could be, it could build up or it could tear down or it could be neutral, but it really just depends on the situation that we're in, right? You have to have wisdom to be able to discern when to say what and how. But the thing about the, the kind of language that Paul is addressing this morning is that it's never appropriate. There's just, there's never a time for it. There's never an occasion. Let me give you an example. Consider, consider a contrast, okay, between two different groups of guys. One group of guys is out on a camping trip, right? Three days in the woods together, a bunch of guys. It's going to be dirty and nasty and gross. I'm sure they're going to be by the fireside. There's going to be body noises. There's going to be joking about how gross everything is. And, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be some some, yeah, some, there's going to be some joking about all that. I'm trying to be really careful here. <laughs> now listen, that's not lovely, but it's not sinful. It's appropriate. It fits the occasion. A bunch of guys being guys out in the woods joking about their bodies, okay? Now compare that, and by the way, I don't know what a female equivalent of that might be. I tried to think of one to give as like an illustration here, and then I thought, you know what, Sean? It's better to not even try, right? You can just sort of take that and apply it in your own way. Uh, Now, you take that and you contrast it to what is now commonly referred to as locker room talk, right? Where men together in a locker room are using filthy, nasty language to say very incredibly rude and nasty and perverted things about women and any number of different things. Well, friends, that's never appropriate. It's just never, ever appropriate. It's always sinful. It's always wrong. Two scenarios, you have two, a bunch of guys together in a room just being guys. One is totally okay. The other one is completely sinful and should never be allowed. Now, I don't have time in the sermon to dive into the three different kinds of speech here. Uh, I think Will did a pretty good job in his prayer of confession, just praying through sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and all these different kinds of speech. He did a good job there. Uh, but I just want to hang out on, on coarse humor for a minute, Okay. The main thing that we need to remember, brothers and sisters, is that the darkness is not a joke. God's wrath is not a joke. Hell is not funny. And the things that lead us to hell are not things that we should joke about. In verse 12, Paul says that the unfruitful works of darkness, works of darkness that lead men to hell, they're they're shameful, right? And he says they're so shameful that we shouldn't even speak about them in public. But then we see here that not only should we not speak about it, if we shouldn't speak about it, especially we shouldn't joke about it. Some of my earliest memories as a child uh, are of watching stand-up comedy, you know, I grew up in a non-Christian home in a very unhealthy, abusive home environment. But man, I remember some of the only good times I had were of uh, listening to Richard Pryor albums on Saturday morning. You know, kids, if you don't know what an album is, you can just ask your parents later, right? Uh, I remember watching Sam Kinison HBO specials. I remember watching Eddie Murphy's Delirious on VHS just over and over and over again. 
And these things were full of filthiness and foolish talk, but especially crude joking. This comedy, it, it normalized, it celebrated, and it made light of things that Christ died for. But I didn't know any better, you know? I wasn't a Christian. My mom wasn't a Christian. I didn't know any Christians. And pretty soon, humor became like my second language, almost like a coping mechanism. If you catch me alone out in the hallway, I'll probably be transparent with you and tell you it's still a coping mechanism. I soon became the guy who would say things that other people wouldn't say, right? As long as it was funny and as long as it would get a laugh, I would be the guy to cross the line. As a Christian, I think that uh, this has been one of the hardest, if not the most difficult area of sanctification in my life. Learning how to speak in a way that doesn't celebrate, normalize, make light of, joke about stuff that, that God doesn't find funny in the slightest. I wanted to hang out here this morning because I think that we're a small enough church that you guys know me well enough by now. You know that I was probably sweating bullets as I was thinking about preaching this part of the text, right? Guys, I'm not... I'm not, as your pastor, I'm not perfect. I'm not better than you. I'm a sinner just like you. And there are certain parts of God's word, when I come to it, it makes me sweat in a good way. It pushes me. It says, hey, Sean, here's a part of your life you need to tighten up on. Not, not so that God will love you, but because God does love you, because he's already saved you, you have to change the way you talk. So friends, I need accountability. I need prayer. I need love. I need forgiveness. I need grace. But what I, what I cannot do, what I must not do, is lower the standard that God has set in his word because I'm weak in this way. I don't lower the bar. I'm gonna preach the bar right where God has placed the bar and I'm gonna tell you, hey, I'm trying to get there just like you are. Let's keep trying to help each other get there together and give each other a lot of grace when we miss. You see, what this really comes down to is an issue of unbelief. Do I really believe do you really believe that sin is as bad as God says it is? Do you really believe that God's wrath is as terrible as God's word says it is? Do you really believe that hell exists and that people who do these things will go there and suffer conscience eternal torment? I think if we believe these things, we just won't ever joke about them. We just won't make light of them. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be taciturn and stern and unfunny all the time. I just don't even know how to be that way. I don't know how to not be a lighthearted, joking guy. Or handsome. It's just who I am. <laughs> See, there it is again. Humor is a gift from God, right? But humor is like what we said about anger last week. Do you remember that? We said, we said that anger can be righteous but you have to handle it properly because it's so dangerous. It can so easily degenerate into sin. I think the same thing is true of humor. Now Paul says, instead of talking about things that are corrupt and shameful ways, we should use our speech to build up and we should use our speech to give thanks. Look at verse four again. Look at verse four. Paul says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. Now this is a little, it's a little awkward. You would expect Paul to say, hey, none of this unrighteous talk. Instead, let's have righteous talk. None of this unholy talk. Instead, let's have holy talk. But he doesn't say holy. He doesn't say righteous. He says thanksgiving. What do you do with that? Well, I think, I think what's happening here is this. A heart that's full of thanksgiving produces a mouth that overflows with thanksgiving. So those who have been brought out of the darkness and into the light are just so overwhelmed with God's grace. They're so thankful that God has rescued them and saved them that that's just what comes out of their mouth. It's just who they are. It comes out in their speech. In contrast, the sexually immoral, the impure, the greedy, they're just so consumed with what's out there, what they don't already have yet, what's yet to come. They're chasing, as we saw in chapter four, they're just greedy for that next pleasure. As Christians, we just tend to focus on what we've already received from God. And then our language comes to reflect it. 
Point three, partner with darkness. We do not partner with darkness. Look at verse seven real quick. It says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't become partners with those who practice sin. Don't become partners with those who try to deceive because of sin. Just don't be partners with any of it. Now, partnership with the darkness can come in many forms, some of them very obvious, right? Some of them very obvious. You are a ranking official in the Nazi party in Germany in 1939. You are very obviously partnering with darkness. You're the grand wizard of the KKK. You're very obvious. You're the president of Planned Parenthood. You're very obviously partnering with darkness, okay? But some of it can be more insidious. Uh... You can partner with the darkness in little ways like, like, let's just stay on the theme of joking, by laughing at inappropriate jokes, by laughing at crude humor. You remember our brother BJ, who used to be a member here? He told me that he had a standing policy that whenever somebody, a guy, would try to tell him a dirty or an inappropriate joke, he would intentionally make his face just go placid. And he just, he wouldn't laugh, he wouldn't respond. And what he was doing there is he was trying to make them uncomfortable. He was trying to prick their conscience. He was trying to let them know that, that he just wasn't going to uh, partner with them and, and, and they're rejoicing and they're celebrating in sin. We can partner with the darkness whenever we associate with false teachers in any way. We don't pray with people in public who profess a different God. We don't do corporate worship services with people who believe in a different Jesus than we do. We don't receive guest preachers who believe a different gospel. We don't have prayer breakfasts with people. You know, the list could just go on. We can partner with darkness by associating with sinners in such a way as to blur the line between the darkness and the light. Now, if you weren't here, by the way, a couple weeks ago, um, we spent a lot of time talking about how the only reason why we are in the light and not in the darkness is because God sovereignly, graciously saved us and therefore there is no pride in any of this. So this morning, if you're here and you're saying, man, these people are talking a lot about sinners. Who do they think they are? Well, we think we're one of them and it's only by God's grace that, that uh, he has saved us. But we can partner with darkness by associating with sinners in such a way as to blur the line between the darkness and the light. It is commonly taught today that Jesus like to hang out with sinners. Now, I understand what people mean when they say that. They, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, listen, we can't be a bunch of Pharisees. We can't just sit around in our little holy huddles. We actually have to have contact with the unbelieving world. We have to have contact with those who are still lost in sin, lost in darkness. And to that, I say yes and amen. But I just want to be very careful. There's a big difference between hanging out and ministering to Jesus didn't hang out with sinners. Jesus intentionally spent time ministering to sinners, trying to lead them into the light. I know so often we can feel like we're doing a good job working the road to evangelism by just hanging out with people who don't belong to the Lord. But friends, if we're not doing that with some sort of real gospel intentionality, I think we may be missing the point. If you ever find yourself in a group of friends and they're a bunch of non-Christians, and you're a Christian, and you just don't ever feel any sense of conflict, you don't ever experience any tension, things don't ever get weird or awkward, you don't ever feel like, man, we don't really have that much in common anymore, you know? This, this, it's hard to make time, it's hard to hang out together. Well, I think that there's a problem in that situation. You may be uh, implicitly telling them just by passively spending time with them without trying to share the gospel with them that they're okay in the darkness when they're not. Now, there are layers to this whole do not partner with those in the darkness thing, okay? Good Christians of real faith can disagree on the extent to which this principle plays out in our lives practically. So let me tell you what I mean. I have a friend, well, I used to have a friend, uh, who would not buy a Disney movie because of Disney's long-standing support of the LGBT movement. Long before it was called the LGBT movement, Disney supported it. And he says, I'm not going to spend money on a Disney movie because I think that I am supporting them. I'm partnering with them. Now, in my family, we don't go that far. 
as we think through the issue and we want to be good stewards and we don't want to partner with the, with the darkness, we th- we're not there. But you should know that Amber and I do regularly have conversations about where we're going to spend our money and we do try to not spend money with businesses that work at cross purposes with the gospel. Okay? There are certain things that are very obviously out of bounds for us as Christians in light of Paul's command to not partner with the darkness. There are things that we must not say or do. There's money that we should not spend, people we should not hang out with, and places that we must not go, boats that must not be cast. But brothers and sisters, there's also a ton of gray area where Christians should feel free to agree to disagree on the best way to work together for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm not gonna do a big whole thing on this. We're gonna be walking through 1 Corinthians 8 through 11 for the next 100 years on Wednesday nights for our inductive Bible study. And we're going to hit on this theme very heavily. So if you want to know more about the Christian conscience, I just encourage you to come back on those Wednesday nights. Point number four, discern the darkness. Discern the darkness. Uh, Not long ago in the church, we at the Finer Things Club, uh, which if you're interested in joining, come and talk to me. Um, we read Hannah Anderson's good little book on discernment. It's called All That's Good. And it was, it was helpful for a number of ways, but one of the main ways that I think it was helpful for us as a group was that it helped us to understand discernment as not just looking for the bad, right? That's what we think about with discernment. We think about discernment bloggers who are just always, they're out there heresy hunting. They're looking for any little thing that may be wrong. But discernment is not just looking for the bad. It's also being able to see the good. I mean, just listen to the way that Paul talks about a discernment in Romans 12 too. He says, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He doesn't say, try to figure out what the bad is. He says, try to figure out what the good is. So in verse 10, when Paul tells us to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, this is the way we need to think about it. Not just the things that God hates, but also the things that God loves. And discernment is like a skill that we refine. We build it up over time. I still remember the first time when we were in the jungle. Uh, I went out there with a group of guys to clear the field behind our uh, cabin. And I was there using a machete and trying to clear the field with a machete. It took about all, all of about 30 seconds for my hand to cramp up. And I cut no grass like the entire day. I was just out there swinging, just cutting nothing. Just to, and these, these guys with blades that weren't even blades, uh, some of them I think they were just using stones that they had sharpened up and made a makeshift bamboo handle with. And they were just clearing just a meter of grass a second. And it was just technique, right? They had finally, they had refined the skill. They had the practice of it down to a science. And I think the same thing is true of discernment. We have to learn how to be discerning. What you should know about this point is that many well-meaning Christians participate with darkness because they just don't understand that they are in the darkness. They have not learned to discern what is light and what is dark. They may have plenty of good intentions, but their discernment is lacking. And poor discernment plus good intentions can lead us down some very bad roads. As individual Christians, If we're not discerning, we can find ourselves in sin that we just never expected to find ourselves in. You know, just, oh, I had no idea this was sin. Well, how did you not know? Well, I just, I wasn't very discerning. As a church, we can waste a lot of time, talent, and treasure that Jesus has given us for his glory on stuff that Jesus thinks is particularly worthless if we're just not discerning. We may adopt ministry practices that actually undermine the gospel and work against the gospel rather than furthering God's gospel purposes. As a pastor, if my discernment level and for the elders of this church, if our discernment level is not finely tuned by God's word, we may stand before the Lord on the last day only to find out that our ministry was built with hay and straw and not with the precious gospel stones that he has given us in his word. So in summary, point number four, If we discern the darkness, we won't be deceived by it. If we discern the light, we will walk in the light, even as he is in the light. Point number five, expose the darkness. What is more powerful, darkness or light? Darkness or light. 
Maybe a better question is this. Does darkness even exist? Or is darkness merely the absence of light? In contrast to practicing darkness, joking about darkness, partnering in darkness, Christians who are children of the light are called to expose the darkness. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Okay, check. But instead, expose them. Okay, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I know. Long sermon. We didn't have Sunday school to kind of get us prepped. You might be fading, but lock in on this right here. Because it's universally true. There is never a situation in which light enters into darkness and is overcome by it. There is never a situation in which light enters into darkness and is overcome by it. Light only and always illuminates the dark, thereby exposing what may be found there. So let me just give you an example. Think about having a shed outside of your house, right? It's a shed. It doesn't have any electricity or anything like that. You realize late one night you've got to go get something out of the shed. It's dark outside. So you go and you open up your dark shed and you look in and what do you know? You can't see anything in there because it's just completely dark. You pull out your phone, right? Ten years ago it would have been you pull out your flashlight. Now you pull out your phone. You hit your flashlight app on your phone and you shine it into the shed. There is never a situation in which the darkness in that shed will overcome or overpower the light from your phone. That's just never going to happen. That's not the way it works. Now, a single light may not be sufficient to expose all of the darkness in any given area, but light always overcomes dark, not the other way around. So with that concept in mind, now listen to what Paul says in verse 8. He says, At one time, we were darkness, but now we... Notice the plural language here. We Christians, the church, we are light in the Lord. So as children of the light, we should never be overtaken by darkness. Our light should be strong enough so that when we go out into the darkness, whenever we encounter the darkness, it doesn't overcome us. We expose it and anything that may be hidden therein. That's why this is such a powerful image that Paul is using here. This is so true of the church. If you, if you think about it, if you, if you were to, this is, a, this is a fairly large room. If we were to kind of black out all the windows and turn off all the lights and have one person stand in the middle of the room in a completely dark, big room like this and light one candle, what would happen? Well, it, might, it would illuminate the dark, but it would illuminate a very small part of it. But what if we had every person in this room sort of space out, each one of us take a candle and light it? What would happen? Well, we would light the room up. And that's what we are as a church. The church is a single light composed of many lights. And our corporate light is magnified in a tremendous way when we walk together in the light of Christ. We have the ability to expose darkness like no one and nothing else in the world. And we can expose it in so many different ways. We expose the darkness that lives in our hearts when we're honest and transparent. When we do what the Lord Jesus commanded us to do and we confess our sins one to another, we expose the darkness. We expose the darkness in the church when we practice biblical church membership and church discipline. You think God is surprised that darkness creeps into the church? He's not surprised. He knew that was gonna happen. That's why in his word he tells us to practice church discipline. It's a mechanism that we use in the life of the church to make sure that the darkness never grows and proliferates and finds a home in the church. We expose darkness in the world through the faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel amongst all the nations of the earth. And we expose the darkness in the world when we live out the gospel, when we practice holiness, justice, reconciliation, and peace and all of the other implications of the gospel as a body. Now, in verse 13, Paul says something here that's so obvious, it may be kind of confusing as to why he even says it. He says this, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Well, 
duh. I, I, don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to that. It's God's word. That feels too flippant to say duh to, but right? Uh, I, think, I think the answer comes in point six, which leads me to point six. As Christians, we convert the darkness. We convert the darkness. You'll notice that in verse 14, Paul quotes something. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, if you studied the text at all before I preached it this week, then you might have seen that and gone to try to look for it in the Old Testament. And if you did that, you would have come up empty, because this is not a quote from the Old Testament. Well, what is it? Well, we're not entirely sure, but there tends to be a broad consensus that this is actually a quote from a hymn that was sung in the New Testament church during baptisms. The church gets together, they're celebrating somebody who has passed from darkness into life, into light, from death to life, and they come together and they sing this hymn at the baptism. So why is Paul quoting that hymn here? Well, I think in order to understand that, we just need to trace Paul's logic. In verse 11, Paul says that rather than participating in darkness, we should expose it. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Paul is explaining that whenever light comes into contact with the darkness, it exposes and overcomes the darkness. And then he goes on to quote from this hymn. Here's what I think is happening. I think Paul is saying, you of all people should understand this concept of how light exposes and overcomes the darkness because that's what happened when Jesus saved you. You of all people should understand this. Don't you remember the hymn that we sang at your baptism, Ephesians? Don't you remember the song that we sang? Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine his light on you. Oh, you of all people should understand what I'm talking about when I say light exposes the darkness because the light of Christ exposed the darkness in your heart when he saved you and you were totally overcome by the light to the extent that you are now light itself. And so in John chapter eight, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You can't. You just can't do it because you're in Christ and he is light. But we'll have the light of life. The reason why Christians cannot walk in the darkness is because Christ has made us light. But you should know that this light, like the light that you have to pay for every month in your house, this light did not come free of cost. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was hanging from the cross to pay the price for our sins? The Gospel of Mark tells us, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. In order to bring us into the light, Jesus had to enter into the darkness. He had to be cut off from the land of the living, from the light of life. He was shut out from the glory of the Father. And he entered into the darkness of God's wrath. I think it would be going too far to say that God is afraid of the dark. But when you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's preparing to enter into the darkness on the cross, what do you see? Well, certainly as, as man, Jesus was full of anxiety. He knew what was to come. He was, he was suffering, he was anxious, and he wasn't afraid like a child of what the imaginary things might be to come. He was suffering because he knew that he was about to enter into the most terrible thing in the universe, into the bleak darkness of the wrath of God. And he went in anyways. He did it to save us. He entered into the darkness because he loves us. But because the Father loved him, he did not leave him in the grave. And after three days, Jesus was lifted, resurrected out of the darkness like a phoenix with a radiance and a brilliance that the world had never seen up to that point and that the world still has not seen since. 
And even now to this day, the light of Christ is still shining brightly. Can't you see it in this room? The light of Christ is shining wherever God's word is faithfully preached and wherever God's people are faithfully gathering together to walk in the light and to be the light. If you're here this morning and you're a professing Christian, but you're living in the darkness, and I don't know what way you might be living in the darkness. I, I could list 10 different things, but I just have a feeling that when, when I say this, you know what I'm talking about. If you're here this morning and you're professing to be a Christian, but you're living in a pattern of sin that you can identify and say, yes, that's darkness, I just want to encourage you to step into the light. I want to challenge you to, to step out of the darkness and to step into the freedom of the light of Christ. I know it's hard. To confess is, is scary. You're afraid of being exposed. It's gonna hurt a little bit at first. It's gonna be a little embarrassing. But friends, once, once you step into the light, all that pain and all that fear and all that embarrassment, it just gives way to peace and to joy and assurance. And you just take a deep breath and you say, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I don't have to hide that anymore. I'm so glad that Jesus still loves me now that my sin's out in the open. He still loves me. He still wants me. His love for me is not based on my performance. If you're a member of this church and you're afraid of confessing your sin, don't be. Our love for you as a member of this church, as elders and as your fellow members, is not based on your performance. We know how screwed up you are already. You're not gonna tell us anything that's gonna catch us by surprise. We just wanna love you and to serve you and to care for your soul and help you to move out of that darkness and into the light. So talk to your spouse. Find a brother or sister. Come and talk to one of the elders. But don't remain in the darkness. Finally, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just, you know, I was thinking about it this morning. I, uh, I reached in my pocket and I grabbed a handful of change, some quarters and nickels and stuff that were in there, and uh, I put them in my truck where I keep all my change. And I stopped and I looked at it for a second. And I, I said, oh, that's probably like seven or eight bucks in change. And it hit me. I just remember being 17 years old and I would have looked at that change and said, man, that's enough to go buy a blunt. I used to dig for change to go buy drugs. That was my life in the darkness. I just can't tell you how good it is to be in the light. I can't tell you how amazing it is in the light. So if you're here this morning and you're in the darkness and you're not in the light, I just want to encourage you, come into the light. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for exposing us to the light of your word. We know that your word sanctifies, and so we pray that as a people we would be holier and happier as we leave here this morning than we were when we arrived. We pray this in your son's name, amen. Please stand as we sing together. There is